Welcome back to Following Noah Dawn, a Stormlight podcast. This week is episode 156, and we are can still in part three, right? We didn't enter part four of Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. Paul, how are you? I'm good, as always. Um, yeah. Yumi. Yumi. Nightmare Painter. That's what we're talking about. True. Elliot? I'm doing good as well. More chapters, more to discuss. I think maybe more to discuss than usual in these chapters this week, so I'm excited. There are several different things to talk about this week. Mainly, um, we're kind of tearing apart Yumi's world and her perspective on life, and then building it back up a little bit, but she's got quite a ways to go. Um by the end of this episode, which she gets quite the reveal. And then it kind of keeps going from there. We get several big reveals about that have different implications for both our characters. So we can, we can get talking about that. Let's roll intro and then talk about Yumi and the nightmare painter. Chapters 22 through 24, these, I must say, do, doing this blindly, I'm doing a really good job of doing chapter splits for our, for our podcast. I feel like they're, I feel like they're sitting quite nicely into different topical discussions. So I'm going to take full credit for that, even though it's completely random. Um, what did you guys, just a quick 10 seconds from each of you. Did you guys expect these reveals in this episode? And how did you how did you respond to them? Are, are you liking where the story's going? Just kind of zoom out real quick. I was not expecting it. I was not expecting it yet. I honestly feel like I was maybe conditioned because it was like we we've talked about this before. It, it's felt like a slow approach to any kind of like prevalent what's the dilemma what's going on what's wrong where is our story headed and here we like get that you know um and i i was kind of surprised it was like first thing you know i i like all the discussions that are kind of coming up with this book we've had like religion based culture versus religion based culture we we're getting into like tradition versus transformation or like reformation we've got the like science versus science versus religion i don't know if that's quite the 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 dichotomy that one but we're getting into a lot of subjects we're getting into a lot of maybe deeper topics than i thought we were going to be heading into i i think i expected this one to be more teen romance novel which it absolutely is right at a few times and then it's absolutely not the very next chapter after that. It's, it, yeah, not, not what I expected. I feel like if there was one phrase to summarize Brandon Sanderson's writing, it's way, it, it delves way deeper than I expected. That yes. I, I think that is a very well put way to describe Sanderson's books. 
where he'll and it's not even one topic he'll take like four topics in a in a book specifically like a stormlight book or this book as well and he'll put the character through the ringer and kind of use that as a discussion point on just you know this random topic so this this episode more than our previous on this book we get to talk about some tradition versus non traditional spiritual and the ramifications of that so chapter 22 right off the bat painter wakes up in yumi's body and chooses chaos he is he's done he's he's going for the gusto today and has decided that i we're not doing all this ritual stuff i don't feel like it today so he I love that this chapter is in Nikoro's head as opposed to Yumi's head because the internal dialogue that Nikoro has is really funny. Um, where he'll he's just making all sorts of chaos for Yumi and she's over there literally having a panic attack and Nikoro doesn't care today. He's just saying, you know, I'll, I'm going to ignore the rituals and... If if you want me to leave you alone, I'll leave you alone and just go do my own thing. And the, there's a phrase of in of his internal dialogue where she says, "I'm trying not to scream," and um, just leave me alone. And he's like, "Okay, her world, her rules," and just turns and walks out the door. And I I thought that was a really really funny bit. What do you guys think of the start of this chapter? And it's even funnier too because that's the moment that they also learn that the connection between them, that design was able to extend on Painter's planet so they could have a little more freedom. Apparently that did not transfer over to Yumi's world because Painter storms out the door and drags Yumi right along behind him because she can't be more than like 10 feet away from him. So yeah, I, I chuckled. I agree that it was hilarious. And it was also really satisfying to just see to see Painter just kind of say shove it to all the like rules and rituals that are in um in Yumi's world. He does so in a like a faux, like a fake way of like upholding those rules. It, it, um but it is really satisfying to just see him like do all the things wrong, have no respect, like Yumi's whole identity has been wound up in and whole process and seeing how she like cannot hardly cope with it you know like like she's absolutely losing her mind it's that sounds bad but i'm like haha that's hilarious but it was really funny it was really satisfying as as the reader for sure i mean it's it's not even the end of the chapter where they you know make up and they're all fine so it, it is it, it's funny so yeah I did commiserate with Yumi for a little bit, though, because I think she says this, or maybe it's in a previous chapter. When Yumi goes rogue on Painter's Planet, it's Yumi's reputation she's putting on the line because she looks like Yumi on his planet. When Painter goes rogue on Yumi's planet, it's also Yumi's reputation on the line because he looks like Yumi. And so when he goes and does crazy stuff, everyone thinks it's Yumi doing it. And so I... Yeah, I'd have a problem with that too. And they have a they they have another quick discussion, and I think it's in chapter twenty three, where 
um Nicaro's about to sneak out from the orchard to go spy on the the scholars or the engineers or whatever they're called and he turns and asks her like we can we can stop if you want me to. Uh, th- this is your body. Everybody will see me as you. You want me to stop? But by that point, uh, Yumi is on board and yells solidarity as they walk out. Um, and they're walking across a field as the the Yokihijo. So, um, well, and and like you like you mentioned. By the end of the chapter, the reckless actions from Painter uncovers quite the secret. Yes. So one of the one of the lines of dialogue that's actually like that actually got to me um in this episode is after the big reveal that there are other Yokihijo, successful Yokihijo, that summon spirits but don't that aren't letter of the law as much as spirit of the law. So they'll, they'll have a weekend off here and there, or they'll feed themselves if they want to feed themselves that the spirits aren't going to zap her into infinity. If she doesn't do X, Y, and Z, like she's been told her entire life. And after the revelation from her handmaiden or whatever, Yumi turns to Nikoro and says, turns out you were right. Good job. And Nikoro just feels terrible because like that that's not what he wanted to hear. He's he's trying to um comfort her and uh Nikoro just feels bad about, you know, making light of all this because of what it turned what it, what it turned out to be. I I feel terrible for Yumi too. I mean like I, I felt a little crushed at the end of these chapters where I I kind of struggled with it, to be honest, just, just a little bit to, to try and figure out how I I wanted to react to it because I do uh, just personally, I do appreciate tradition. And I think there is value in doing things the way that they have been done, following in the footsteps of, of ancestors, though that sort of thing. But it, you look at the situation through a certain lens, it almost takes on a flavor of like slavery Yeah. of Yumi has not only been lied to, she's been used. She's been lied to so that she will perform this action in service of this religion. Like if you, if you think about that in, in certain ways, that starts to sound kind of nasty in some ways. And maybe that's taking it too far. I don't know, but it's not like she's been physically abused, or, I, I think. But it's, I don't know. It almost left a bad taste in my mouth. And I think that's fair. I I think something that would Im- would be important to distinguish is we haven't seen anyone else's perspective on Yumi's planet, really. Yeah. We haven't really seen another perspective because in my head... We, now that we hear that these other Yokihijo have a more, I guess, almost like normal life. You know, not like a normal life, but, you know, like they'll take weekends off. They'll, like, just work some of the days each week. Things like that. You know, like, it's it's more normal. Yeah. I don't know if that is because maybe they're 
servants kind of allowed for that? Or my guess, my understanding is kind of the Yokihijo really sets the rules. But as long as they don't really know that they set the rules and it's just rituals, we need to get as much done as we can, then they'll do that. So I'm thinking Yumi is like a a dream come true if you're the servant or, or if you're the people who rely on the Yokihijo because she's not questioning anything. She's never she's not gonna ask for a break. She's not gonna ask for like any special like privilege or anything like that. She's just gonna put her nose down and do what she thinks is what, what she thinks is the right thing to do because she's so driven by a like code of of right and wrong. I guess like a code of this is what you should be doing and like I guess legalism, right? Um, I don't know. Like, like once again, I don't know if that's how all the people are on this planet. Maybe they are, and maybe Yumi isn't, and it's the people that she's been around. But I feel like she just hasn't had the knowledge. She's been under the assumption that this is what all Yokihijo do, and she may not even be like that response. Like, she needs. She's still pushing herself to be better, even though we're learning now she is so many leagues probably ahead. Of, of these others um, in, like, dedication, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, and, and I think Yumi says something really important in Chapter 23. It, it's not that Yumi is necessarily against all the things that she's been forced or, or led into. It's that she didn't have a choice. Yep. It's that the choice was removed from her. Not necessarily the actions themselves, they're the problem, but just the fact that she was forced into it and was never even given the explanation of what was happening. Yeah, I agree. From our very first episode on this uh, book, she has expressed the desire to go to the festival. Uh, just just one day, that's what she wanted, to go experience the festival, go to the big city, see all the people. And based on the information that we just got revealed, that type of request is absolutely doable um, by, you know, 13 out of, or 12 out of the 14 Yokohijo. Yep. And she, she absolutely could take a weekend off to go to the city for the festival. And like, like that is not a hard request based on the other Yokohijo going, taking two weeks off to go spend with their family across the world or wherever they are. Um, so I, I don't know why my brain keeps going back to that random festival that was brought up exactly once, but I, uh, I, I think that she'll be able to go, um, on her own terms. Uh, and I think we'll be able, I think we're going to see that. So. I, I agree with you, Trevor. And that's really what hurt me was like seeing that I, I forgot about that detail because in my head, Yumi hasn't asked for anything, but we do know that she's asked for that one thing, which is she wants to go to that festival, which it's actually pretty unreal that she's been declined that that actually kind of frustrates me yep. on her on her behalf. So <laughs> so with the knowledge that we have of of this situation, um, this, I guess, uh, I'll call it poor work life balance that she's been um that she's been thrust into um i it makes me feel maybe more satisfied 
that Nicaro is in here and demanding all this stuff and causing a scene, if you will. And Nick Nicaro has this internal dialogue in 22 where, yes, I know you, me, this will be shocking for you, but it'll be good for you. Just watch. And he, he doesn't know. Um, he doesn't know the full implications of, of what are about to happen of the servants about to reveal that you've been lied to your whole life. But he's like, it, it is okay to push on rules a little bit. Like th that is 100% acceptable in life is to test, test your rules and see what and why they're there. Um, because she's never even done that. She's, she's never even asked why things are the way they are. Um, so to, to get that further knowledge, and that's what Nicaro assumed was going to happen is like, I'll just push a little bit and see what happens. He had no idea that it was that fragile, that it was going to break that fast. But, uh, he, he just wanted to, to push a couple buttons and see what happens. Are you guys ready to talk about the scholars tent? Just real quick. We are. Four for four, five for five. I've lost count now on uh, bathing scenes. Pretty consistent. It's got to be more than four now, right? It's got to be se it's several. Well, we, we got two this week. And uh, I, th there was one episode where we didn't get a, where we didn't get one because we were we, we were busy shopping on Nakaro's planet uh, for the whole episode and didn't True. get a bathing scene. So uh, uh. I do think we're six for six, but I think there was one where we didn't get any. And this episode we get two. So if we, we are keeping count. You're you're right. We went and talked about bra sizes for a little while. We did. Uh, <laughs> you did. How could you That's, forget? Yeah. All right. So they are going to go spy on some scholars. Elliot, in a previous episode, I don't remember what you called these, but you predicted that the scholars machine was going to be like this heat. Sterling engine. There you go. Sterling engine. And it was going to use the heat from the floor yeah. to do something. You're wrong. Um, apparently. I know. I was, I, I was really proud of that, that prediction. I was like, this is brilliant. We, there, there literally are these engines that just run off of heat that like rises up through the bottom of the machine. It would have been a perfect fit, but no, apparently the real answer is like a little more sinister. Yeah. Apparently there's like key online engineering happening on Yumi's planet and nobody knows about it. Yeah. And okay. Let me talk you through how I processed this this scene that we saw. This is going to kind of spread across these these chapters we had here. But I I actually went to a rather scary place in my head with this and I want to see if you guys follow or if you can talk me off the ledge. So Okay. <laughs> then Nakaro and Yumi Decide they're gonna do something dangerous. They're like, all right, we gotta we gotta do something reckless. We just gotta do it. So they they head off to sneak into the scholar's tent to go see what they're up to with this rock stacking machine. Yumi, as the spirit person, sneaks ahead, pokes her head through the tent, and she sees them working on the machine. And the scholars have this interesting conversation about how they can't get the machine to start. It it, it needs like a it needs a jump. It mm -hmm. needs to start. And they like look to the most junior one in the room and they're like, hey, your turn. 
you you started. Yeah. And and the guy's like, I don't want to do it. You do it. And they're like pulling straws for who has to start the machine. And finally, the one person volunteers and he gets down by the machine and he like reaches out his hand or his, his face or something. And the Heon lines appear from him and lead into the machine. And then Yumi leans in and accidentally a Heon line appears between her, Spirit Yumi, and the machine as well. And I think it's heavily implied that it's Yumi's like spark that starts the machine. Correct. We, we can talk about that all in a second. And then, you know, chaos ensues as they realize that, oh, there's another, there's a spirit in the room with us. Quick, get it. I immediately went to, hang on a second. Heon comes from people and or spirits. That has potentially really, really scary implications for Painter's Planet. Think about this. Think about this. If human beings or spirits are the fuel for Heon, what is powering Painter's entire city? So... I w- I'm gonna I'm gonna add to this, and then and then I'm gonna present something else. Um, Talk me off the list. What please, I have, please. What I have, what I have to add to make it worse is okay. I don't actually remember. This is a question. The Heon lines are they coming from? Like like they go to the uh, what's it called? The in my head it's called the void, but it's not that the 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 shroud. The shroud, yes. There's like a whole they, sh- shroud wall or something, isn't there? There is. Um, the un- Heon lines just keep the shroud at bay, uh, right? Yes, unspecified. But if this answers your question, the Heon lines are thicker and brighter in the middle of the city and get and disperse as you get closer to the shroud. Does that help you at all? Where the, where that the helps human a little factory bit. must be. <laughs> I'll wait till Paul's uh-huh. done, but this is not that sinister, My, Elliot. I can. There's a very yeah, easy I, explanation I, for this. It's gonna be. I'm terrified. So, when you mentioned that, Elliot, in my head, the healing lines were like emerging from the shroud, and if so, then I'm like, oh mm. no, oh no, that could be horrible. What's behind there? But I think it's more of like maybe Heon is just. It's just investiture that people have, and everything is kind of made up of a little bit of heon kind of thing. Impressed. And maybe it's brighter there in the middle of the city because there's more people that are passively producing a little bit of heon. You know. Uh, yes, Paul, you are correct. Uh, I mean, you you know as much as I do, but the yeah. if if you're getting stormlight from from Roshar. That there's two places you can get it from. Either you, a night radiant can absorb it in themselves, or you can get it from a a container, which is a, a sphere on Roshar. So it, it is well documented that investiture can be in people, at least in a small percentage. Yeah, and sure. even like sure. Mistborn, there's like right, even like residual metal. You know, right. you, you still have to be a Mistborn oh, in yeah, that yeah. case, right? But like residual stuff. But- then why is the guy scared to start the engine? Why is he scared to let the machine suck his energy and his soul away? So here's... That's fair. And 
there's another part of this that I do want to bring up as well. The the four scholars in in the in the in the room. Three of them are deliberately named. We get three names. The fourth one is deliberately unnamed. And I thought this was weird because the other three get named like multiple times. Brandon Sanderson goes out of his way to tell us three names and they call each other by three names. And then the fourth guy, who's the one who ends up turning on the machine, I believe, um, he is unnamed. And this has all the footprints on it or the fingerprints on it of this fourth guy is someone we should recognize. I think I, I think this fourth guy is a world hopper of some sort and we're supposed to know who it is. Help me out. The, the, um, the description we get is beard light mustache that isn't holding up. It's part of the bargain. I, I cannot think of anyone who's described by their facial hair. I feel like I'm not an expert on world hoppers yet <clears throat> to try and make guesses. Hoyd's already here. Mm-hmm. Who who else would be here? I don't know. Um, so I'm also... Yeah, I don't actually know. Unironically, this is a ridiculous guess because I have no grounding for it other than my feelings, I guess. Um, I feel like if there's a world hopper, it's from, it's from a place we haven't seen. It's from like maybe a place laid further on in the timeline. Okay. Yeah. I'm judging that based off of just painter's planet. So I'm like maybe Mistborn era two. I don't know. Is there some character from there or I don't and, know. I haven't, we haven't read Elantris. So I'm like, maybe there's a bearded character in Elantris. Yeah, maybe the, and there's Let me go ahead. Elliot. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna take. I'm gonna take us back to my my scary theory. So, if you have stuff to keep going with, then go. Just with this guy, there's when there's a world hopper, there's usually a line next to the world hopper that says, "He didn't look like he was from here," or "I'm not from here," or "I look different," or something like that. There is not that with this guy. That he he appears to have the same skin tone. That everybody that there has been a single reference to to skin tone, I think, in this book. So they whatever he looks like, he looks like Yumi and Painter and everybody else. Um mm-hmm. so that the, there was not that feed, but just I don't know if I'm gonna accuse this guy or there's somebody in the scholars, either back in the capital city or whatever who started this as a world hopper, who's, who's feeding this to them. That, that's where these he online, harnessing the he lines is coming from. Somebody knows to harness spirits with investiture and is feeding that directly to Yumi's people. That's how these machines came about um, quite recently. Um, and I, yeah. I, I assume that's world hopper. I assume it's even Roshar. I think somebody read... Navani's paper on harnessing Spren and that type of thing came over to Yumi's planet and is trying it. I, I would go as far to, to, to say that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have there something to think about? What if this is a world hopper 
but it's someone that we would see later in a different story. Yeah. And like, the... maybe we should keep... It's a kind of odd little description, and this this isn't really that helpful of a thought, but I'm like, you know, I'm thinking now if we ever see a character described in the future, maybe that has a beard and a dainty mustache. Like, that's a pretty easy description to mm-hmm. to 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 sneak in there. So... If you, uh, if you don't believe my scary... Painter's planet is basically the matrix and they're harvesting human bodies. <laughs> Here's the, the the quote to convince you. This is right after all this happens where Yumi is, she, she just felt the he on leave her body and go into the machine. It says, Yumi felt a coldness come over her, an actual physical coldness, not just a fear. The machine had stolen warmth from her. And then it goes into the scramble where they try and chase her down. Like, I don't know. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous here. I, th- that is funny, but because I would just read that as that's a Fabriel, and she is having her investiture sucked from her by a Fabriel, because they 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 say yeah. go get the capture device or whatever, right? Right. So I'm. I guess I'm going a step further and thinking about this in like warbreaker terms. I'm thinking of this as like she just had her breaths forcibly removed from her mm. and the the scary potential what might be happening on Painter's planet is somebody has a factory where they are extracting everyone's breaths and using it to power all of the Heon lines. Maybe okay. not. Maybe okay. not. Interesting. Maybe not. But until I have another credible explanation of where the Heon is coming from on Painted Planet, I'm going to be nervous. All right, random theory. What if they're powered by dreams? I can see that that's what nightmares take from people, maybe. But I don't know how that would get converted into Heon. So, Me neither. um, Short answer, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, question, question though. Um, When... Painter draws bamboo and deals with a and deals with a a a simple nightmare. It the nightmare like turns into bamboo, right? Yes. It could be I think this is the one way I could see Elliot's theory kind of working, but also not in the way that he's thinking. Perhaps nightmares come. It's like a vicious cycle. Perhaps nightmares come. And if they take someone's, like, dreams, breath, simply just the heon without sugarcoating it, like, some way, shape, or form, whenever that nightmare is dealt with and it just turned into bamboo, maybe bamboo can't hold investiture and it kind of dissolves. It kind of evaporates. <laughs> That's a really, uh, I think, a really dumb prediction, honestly, like a really dumb way to put it. But I am curious how the Heon is just like it is now, you know? Seeing it have a place on Yumi's planet makes me really curious more so about how it is. Because before seeing it on Yumi's planet, I'm just like, oh, no, that's just how Heon is. It's just this big light line of light that goes through the sky. No question. No further questions needed. Like, I get it. But seeing it on here, I'm like, okay, there's something more... There's, it's somehow tied to people in some capacity. It could not be morbid. It, it could be very much just, yeah, Heon makes up everything. Blanket statement. 
Yeah. Um, but I am, I'm really not sure. And it, it could be something more deliberate. It could have been something virtuosity left behind, um, like deliberately, because Definitely. the the high storm on Roshar is kind of like a side effect of yeah. on, honor dying or whatever, um, and that's why it's full of investiture. This one could be like, or... I'm I'm going to splinter myself deliberately. I'm going to leave this behind provisionally, or or even like on on Roshar. Dalinar can like open the portal to the spiritual realm and they get unlimited, you know, infinite investiture, right? right? When he does that, it, it could be some sort of like permanent version of that. Maybe there's like a, a, a portal or a pool somewhere that is an, a tap into the spiritual realm and there's just investiture like pouring out of it that's, you know, powering the key. I, I could totally see that too. Yeah. All right. Who had flying away in a tree from a, from a get, from a scene of the crime on their bingo card for this book? I think I totally predicted that, right? Didn't I? I totally said something about that before. I was I was fascinated by this a little bit because... So one of the things that Brandon changed in the published version we have in our hands from the original pre-release copies was that he added in a paragraph early on in one of those early chapters where Hoyd talks about how the trees fly. Oh, and by the way, there's some magic involved to it too. It's not just the thermals that they're riding on. That was added. And I noticed it when I was reading this the first time. So I've been kind of on the, the hunt for, okay, what's, what's going on with the trees. And then here we get to this scene where they fly away on the tree and painter discovers that when he hugs the tree, He's now a tree hugger. He spent a good portion of this chapter hugging the tree. True. When he presses his body against the tree, his body takes on some of the light buoyancy that the tree has. Like he can feel it. He can feel that when he lets go of the tree, he feels gravity's pull. And when he hugs the tree, he feels lighter. And if he hugs the tree all the way, the tree lifts up. And if he lets go of the tree, the tree comes down. What what is going on with that? That is that's trippy. So I'll, I'll mention something. You guys catch on that? I I did, and then I'll come back to what you said. I'll mention something real quick. the The speed at which they get away with this tree is hilarious to me. Um, the they they both hop in this tree, and it specifically says they climbed forty or fifty feet in the span of minutes. That is not fast. That is that is not fast. So I just really think think it's hilarious that all the scholars run out and they're looking around and they see this tree just going. I could just imagine <laughs> that if if this was a visual adaptation, it just like pans out like a quick quick shot and it's like twenty seconds of just this tree just going. Yeah. It shows the tree like lifting off, like a dramatic like push up into the air, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, they've made it!" And then yeah, it zooms out and they're going yeah, upward. I, I didn't think about that at all, Trevor. I thought it was really That's funny. Pretty funny. Maybe, maybe also something you didn't think about. What if the average height on this planet is way less than what you think of? You know, maybe they're all like hobbit sized. 
And so maybe 40, 50 feet is way more comparatively <laughs> than it is to a you know, six-foot group of people. It's, it's possible. However, it is well-documented <laughs> that um, Hoyt is interpreting this for us as we go. So the feet is... He's he's describing this as we should visualize it, not as like a you mm. know a quirky feet to, feet to inches okay. comparison. Okay, you got me. I did. Well, and it, it the reason why Brandon Sanderson does that and specifically, um, like spells that out because he he says this for, um, for Mistborn and Roshar, he uses feet. Um, for both, although feet are not the same on both worlds because Roshar people are a lot taller than uh, Scadrial people. But he doesn't go through the, like, these are words of Brandon that I'm talking about, like Q&A sessions. He, he doesn't go through the process of describing Kaladin as six foot six because then the entire time you're thinking of Kaladin, you're thinking of this huge guy. Whereas on Roshar, yeah, he's tall, but he's not, like, huge. Everybody is huge on Roshar. Whereas Vin, yes, she's, like, four foot five. And that's really, really short. But on Scadrial, that's not extremely short. That's just small. Like, she, she's just, she's she's small. So putting Kaladin next to Vin would be quite funny to see a... a height difference there but he doesn't spell all that out just because he doesn't want the reader us thinking like overthinking heights and stuff like that he just says feet like on earth can i can i read you guys a section of the book yes please is this i i know is I this know the visual description one? the audiobook yes okay i wanted to bring this up too because i was listening i re-listening to this today and i was like man Brandon Sanderson stepped his game up with visual descriptions in books. I, I'm so glad you're about to read this because he spends like a whole page describing the visuals in the air that, that Nicaro is seeing. And I was like, wow, that you would not find this in a Stormlight book. If, if you've listened to the beginning of this podcast, our Stormlight episodes, our especially like our, our wrap-up episodes on some of the Stormlight books, you, you've heard me complain. You've heard me ask Brandon for more description. Describe to me what the characters are seeing in the world around them. And Trevor, you're absolutely right. He spends an entire page, which is a lot for Brandon. Like that's it. It's not a lot for Tolkien. Tolkien will give you like four pages, but for Brandon, this is this is five times as much description as you normally get on something. And I I realize you guys are listening to the the audiobook. A lot of our listeners are probably also listening to the audiobook, and I'm sure Michael Kramer reads this way better than I can. But I wanted to just read a a, a small section of it and talk about it with you guys because this I think is clearly my favorite moment of this book so far. They'd risen just high enough to reach the bottom layer of the sky's plants, mostly weeds and wildflowers here. The tree peeked up through the layer of foliage like it was breaking the surface of a lake. Flowers sprouting from the center of lily pads danced with bushes that spread limbs wide to catch the thermals. Leaves and florets, similar to the white sprigs that dandelions release on Scadrial, 
or deluco plants release here, swirled in the air. Butterflies exploded from a bush, fluttering to surround the tree. Tree's motion caused eddies in the air around them, carrying the various fecund flotsam and swirls and patterns. Painter breathed out, momentarily forgetting everything. And it goes on to even describe it in even more descriptive about the, the dew that forms, the water droplets that form, and how the, the light from the sun catches that and just sparkles. I pictured this vividly in my imagination. And there's another line where Nakaro turns and looks at Yumi, and he has an... There's a line that says, and she joined the picturesque scenery perfectly or something like that. And that's uh, when I was listening to that today, I was like, wow, that is. Yeah, it does not sound like Brandon Sanderson. Just it it doesn't sound like Brandon Sanderson. It was it, it was powerful. I, I had to set the book down, like take it in and then read it again. And then and then on top of that we find that not only do we get that description, we get artwork of that moment as well. Yeah, I'll put and it on screen for people. I didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't even realize on my first read, because the artwork is actually slightly misaligned from the story. Mm -hmm. We were talking about this in our Discord, actually, just like today or yesterday. The, in, the, in the print version of the book, the artwork is not quite exactly on the same page when the event is happening sometimes. And this is one of those cases. You actually hit this gorgeous full two-page artwork several pages ahead of when the scene actually hits so it was on really my second read through that i hit this and realized just exactly what we were looking at here which is a really really cool piece of work that i realized again not right when i first saw it i remembered back this is the bit of artwork that we got to see a preview of at dragonsteel last year last year yep. they did some previews of artwork from the various secret projects and you know very secret very if you don't want spoilers walk out of the room now kind of thing and and this was the artwork that they showed which we had no context for in the moment you know we had no idea what this was talking about it was you know at the time it was oh okay there's two kids playing in a tree and lo and behold this is this is like that moment that is just so beautifully described in this chapter i my appreciation for this piece of artwork just skyrocketed and i i think this is the best visuals we've ever gotten for a cosmere book and i don't think that's controversial to say the the ability of alaya chen to read that passage and then produce this is incredible like this this piece to interpret what you just read is incredible I, I agree. I remember getting to we, we got to go to this like art showcase or whatever they called it exactly. And I remember we got to hear from each of the artists. And I think Elia Chen was the one that impressed me the most. Yeah. Um, she was just a young artist who what didn't she get found or discovered from like a Tumblr page or something like that? Or like some like random thing just someone saw her art and was like this is really good yeah and uh, ended up she she got invited to to do the artwork for secret project three just did a fantastic job i absolutely love the floral landscape is uh, it's my favorite it's my personal favorite all all that being said 
And once again, the 90% of the colors are magenta and azure. Like the Yep. It just adds to the piece. And the the details too that you only at least I only pick up after reading the passage. They 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 go hand in hand so well. You you read the description, then you come back to this art and you see the the butterflies in the background. Yep. Like the little cloud back there that it described. You see that her hair is like in this crazy, you know, spread out ball, which when you first look at it, didn't like stand out as odd to me, but then you come back and realize, oh yeah, they're they're against this tree that's giving them this weightless kind of zero G effect. So her hair is like floating and waving in the in the air like it normally wouldn't. It's yeah, this 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 is cool. The explanation that I'm about to describe is kind of strange to me and I kinda of want to talk about it. As they're I, as Yumi and Painter are, well, Painter is more gazing adoringly at Yumi, and Yumi doesn't really notice. Yumi's looking at the scenery. And then Yumi kind of has her snap back to Earth moment of, they're still going to find us, right? Like, we're, we're just going to land in the orchard, and they're going to come see where we landed. And then Nakaro says, no, they won't, because this day is too perfect for it to be ruined now. And then it, the scene ends and it just jumps to they didn't see where they landed and we're moving on. And I was like, okay, wait, hold up. Like, <laughs> was were we supposed to actually be concerned that they were still being watched or it kind of just cut scene and Nicaro's back with his clothes that he left by the by the edge of the orchard next to the scholar's tent and he's sitting back at the shrine which is like through the woods a little bit like i was i was like i was like okay hold on like i i, I do want a little bit of a description of what just happened because necrol just like no you're too perfect this will never be spoiled and then the scene ends and he's sitting back at the shrine with his clothes on hold on what happened it's fairy tale trevor yes clearly i thought that was funny where and it's like I'm, I'm, the scene is done and we're going to the next scene and there's a jump cut and that's fine so how are y'all feeling about these machines so they they, they have the the stack off right at the that's how mm -hmm. we end this episode is man versus machine yes and both the machine and the man work for hours stacking to summon one spirit and the spirit shows up, looks at the machine, looks at Nikoro, looks back at the machine, and walks over to the machine. And then Yumi freaks out. And yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. I I was so confident that these machines would not work. I I was so confident that virtuosity would have would appeal to the person making the art, not the art itself. Apparently I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I was gonna I wanted to bring that up because um I don't remember exactly what Elliot said on this, but I, in my head I think I was the only one who said that the machine would indeed uh summon a spirit, and now I think you both owe me an apology. If <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> um but uh no, but I, I thought this was interesting. That's an I think I had predicted maybe that the 
I honestly, I need to look back. I don't remember what I predicted because I'm still torn about it. In my head, it's still kind of a farce that it did mm -hmm. produce a spirit. But the dilemma, I think, is is a good and interesting one of the like. Um, Yumi, I think, is like, oh, well, that can't replace a Yokihijo. Like, you can never replace a Yokihijo. And they're like, the creators are like, well, what if we have tons of these? You know, like, what if and, we have tons of them and they can work all the time? You know, like, like that's. And and the know. the moral question of man versus machine, art versus non-art, aside for a second, I think these machines solve a problem more than present a problem for Yumi, and she just I hasn't agree. and she just hasn't seen this yet. Assuming this happens, and machines go to every little town work 24 hours a day and summon one spirit a day or whatever. That frees Yumi instead of unemploys her, if you want to mention, like, say it that way. Like, we just had two full chapters of Yumi being so shocked and so bereaved that she has had her entire youth stolen from her. And then there's a machine here that will replace her job. They they say that will replace Yokihijo. And she's upset about it. Because yeah. maybe the machine is feeding off the souls of the innocent. <laughs> it's a conspiracy, man. Uh, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you. That's funny. Souls of the innocent, man. Oh, yeah, that's funny. I was going to say, I honestly am not sure. So I know Brandon, I, I imagine if he was asked, which he may have already been asked at this point, if he's asked, like, is Brandon trying to make a point about like technology versus jobs in like real life, right? I imagine he would say, No, of course not. This is just a story, and whatever purpose you whatever meaning you draw from it is your choice. Allegory? Nah, never. Yeah. Yeah. But but even even if it were intentional, this is a different situation of it's like it's not like um, Yumi is like making this incredible living off of what she does and that's going to be taken away from her she's kind of uh, Elliot was comparing it to slavery and I would just about go that far as well of of she's kind of an in, yeah <laughs> she's kind of just held there to do this and that her people have to do so like her people have to have these spirits to like survive pretty much right and so, sorry. So, so you're right, Trevor. It's like it's taking, it's like absolutely taking a, a problem away. It's not like unemploying her, right? I, I, I might be able to go down that that train of thought, except for one, my conspiracy theory. But two, the the original premise of the book. The call from the spirits to free us, help us, free us. And then specifically, that it's not the service the spirits give in the devices they create. Like in that scene, Yumi's like, oh, we're, I, I shouldn't be capturing you into these devices. And the spirit says, no, that's not the problem. There's another problem. I, I can't shake the idea that the fact that these machines is running off of the heon that that has to be part of this problem okay 
your your conspiracy conspiracy theory is slowly gaining traction in my brain. But when you brought it up at the beginning of the episode, I dismissed it quite quite quickly. But your 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 evidence is circumstantial yet compelling. I will say <laughs> it it can be both. I I will say I was I was quite surprised. Although I was quite surprised that the spirit came at the stacking of Nicaro and the machine. Although Hoyd, I guess, is our narrator, leaves it clearly up to a bit of interpretation as to who was the cause of the spirit appearing. Right. Is it painter? Is it the machine? Is it the combination of both? It it does seem likely though that this the machine does indeed summon a spirit, even if it's just like one a day right. or something like that. Which I think in, in our prediction section, I think I predicted it would not show and that I would have to rethink things if it did. And so now I think I'm in the I need to rethink things stage. It I uh, apparently the spirits are not drawn to human creative ability like my Roshar oriented brain wants them to be. It, it I have to now equate it more to the actual art itself. Yeah. The actual stack of rocks, I, not necessarily the act of stacking the rocks. I was so confident that if the machine were to summon a rock, it would be because the engineer created the machine, not because the machine is right. creating art. Right. And apparently that's, guess that's not the case i guess i'm incorrect which i don't know how i feel about that i'm, I'm curious to know if there's what an if? actual answer to that or if it's just going to be machine made art is art is the is the point in virtuosity's eyes i guess what if it's literally down to our shards what if it's you know cultivation is the act of cultivating it's it's more action oriented and virtuosity is more art and final product oriented. Mm. It's the music, it's the art, it's the beauty, not the creativity necessarily. Whereas maybe cultivation is the creativity or the act of creating sort of thing. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe that's where it really is. Are you arguing that if cultivation were on the system that it wouldn't have worked? Correct. Yes. Okay. If it was anything else from this episode, gentlemen, I don't think so. I'm. I'm, I'm really curious I'm emotionally... to see where we. Go ahead, Paul. Sorry, sorry about that. I, I'm really curious to see where we go with this whole machine debacle. I'm wondering if if we will kind of. I think this is going to come back. I think it's going to be something different. I think we're going to learn more rigid rules about how this works and how this attracts a sprint. And I think it... This, I'm really running with this ball, but I think it's going to provide maybe more insight into how we view Fabrioles. Okay. Even in Stormlight. Not 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 really like a... This is a groundbreaking change to how we view Fabrioles, but like... Just a little minor mechanic detail kind of thing. Like, you know... Like, even though it's a, quote, machine, like, it still has a property of this or that or something. That's my guess as to where this is going to go. Aside from that, I don't know. So, 
Those are my two cents. I wonder if Nikoro's people could use nightmares the way Yumi's people use spirits. Like, could you paint a nightmare into a dining table and then use the dining table? Like, <laughs> It's a good question. I'm feeling... I'm feeling very emotionally spent mm. after these chapters. Because on one end, I've... I just, I think, read the most beautiful passage I've read from Brandon Sanderson yet, and just the, the, the descriptive, sensual experience that was that. And then on the flip side of it, there's like this fear now hanging over me that we're going to discover a people factory that is strapping people down and sucking their souls out in order to power the industrial city with them like such beauty such terror all in all in me at the same time in these chapters this is, this is a lot i mean granted i could have never guessed that we would our a, a flying tree would be our getaway car in this episode if you are correct it, i will be so confused on where and why this story is going that I I will be unpleasantly surprised, I guess, that if, if you are correct about a human investiture sucking factory, that would be that would be crazy. Well, there's a one single way for us to find out, I think. Yeah, go on the wiki and spoil ourselves, right? That's what you're talking about? That's what I plan okay, to do right okay, after this. There are two options. <laughs> okay, let's keep reading and reconvene next week. Thanks for joining me, Paul, and Elliot. See you next time. Sayonara. <laughs> <laughs>